The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, July 21st, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. John Kasich, gonna run for president, brings the field to 16. Or of those who could actually get elected, five, five Republicans by my estimation. Kasich, Rubio, Bush, Walker, and Perry. Wait, wait, wait. What about Chris Christie? I think he's disqualified because he might be able to win a general. I see him as having no path to the nomination. Cruz is kind of the opposite. If the GOP wants to nominate a Tea Party standard bearer, that'd be Cruz. But I don't see him having any chance in the general. I think Kasich's a long shot. I think Perry's a long shot. But they're both popular governors of huge states. Perry, former governor. They can raise money. They give good speeches, and that qualifies them. I think Kasich gives a good speech. He, in this speech, in this announcement today, he gets a little better angels of our nature e here and there. We got back on that bus. I will never forget it as long as I live. We got back on that, on that bus, and I said, folks, do you understand? Some of them had been with me for a long time, so they got it. But some of the others were rookies. And I said, do you understand what we are doing here? This isn't a political campaign. And by the way, either will this be. This is not a political campaign. Did you see those people? Did you see the tears in their eyes? Did you see them hugging their children? Did you see them not hopeless? We're going to join in and we're going to help them. Because it is our job and our mission as human beings, as children of God, to work with them, to lift them. And guess what? And guess what? Well, the guess what, guess what? That was a line about the sun rising in Wilmington. Okay, that was a little pat. But there are moments when he really seems to be talking. Like when he conjures an anecdote, he seems to actually remember the person he's talking about as opposed to knowing, oh, that's the next beat to get to as loaded in my teleprompter. I'm sure a lot of it's performative, but Kasich has a way of interrupting his patter with a word, a word like empathy. Empathy. And then he'll slow down and he'll say, wait, and this is important. This one is so important. And he'll emphasize things and you feel like you're being talked to. Also... What he does not emphasize is the horrors of the Obama administration. That'd get big cheers from a Republican crowd. He is more about talking about the possibilities of the future. He does this more than any other Republican candidate I've seen. In politics, in life, he has done a lot to work across the aisle, as they say, with Democrats. That actually poll show is very unpopular among Republicans, even more so than Democrats. Compromise is seen as a vice to many GOP voters. I don't know if his is a winning formula. But it does seem a little different, and in this crowded field, different is good. On the show today, I spiel about horribleness. I give you my stance on it. I'm opposed. But first, pivoting off a comment about pulchritude and jocularity, I talk to Michael Schur, creator of Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Parks and Rec, and I ask, is it true that really, really attractive people are born behind the comedy eight ball? A week ago, a couple weeks ago, Michael Eisner made a comment 
about how it's very hard to find a beautiful woman who could also do comedy. This comment was assailed for obvious reasons, but it was one of those comments where you could say, you know, that's stupid and not even worth discussing, but I think it's stupid but worth discussing because <laughs> I've always wondered about the role of physical beauty in comedy. I think it's way too antiquated a notion to think they can't work together, but they do work together in some specific ways. So joining me now is Michael Shore, who's the creator of Parks and Rec, who was a producer on The Office, and his new show is Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Hey, Mike. Hello. So you have to cast a show and you want to do a couple things. You want to cast it with people. Your shows aren't like friends where everyone has to be beautiful. So you want to cast it with people of different types, people of different levels of beauty. Yet at the same time, you know that somewhat attractive people have charisma. That's part of it. You know, how much of a calculation is it in terms of how good looking the people are, how physically attractive they are? Or is that just, you know, if they're funny, they're funny? That depends a lot about on where you are making the show, what the target audience is, what the premise of the show is, what the tone of the show is. I mean, when you're doing Friends and you're saying like, all right, these are six swinging 20-something singles living in a nice apartment in New York City and they're going to have very upscale, you know, <laughs> crate and barrel adventures. Hi. Hi. What's wrong, buddy? Someone at work ate my sandwich. <laughs> well, what did the police say? You kind of need it to be attractive people. And by the way, it's like 1990, whatever it is. Yeah. The greatest casting director in the world is named Allison Jones. Allison Jones cast Freaks and Geeks. She cast Arrested Development, The Office, Parks and Rec, of Judd Apatow's movies. She has a niche. She I read a, about her, I think, in New York Times yeah, Magazine. She's a big, yeah, she's a big profile in The New Yorker. And New Yorker. Allison's thing is she likes people who aren't beautiful. And she likes weirdos. And weirdos are great. And weirdos is where you find the best comedians, in my opinion. Once a year, Donna and I spend a day treating ourselves. What do we treat ourselves to? Clothes. Treat yourself. Fragrances. Treat yourself. Massages. Treat yourself. Mimosas. Treat yourself. Fine leather goods. Treat yourself. It's the best day of the year. The best day of the year! Who in the world wrote, has ever written a movie or a TV show where the lead character is both the most attractive person and the funniest person in the movie. That doesn't make any sense. Like, that's like saying you're writing a movie about someone who's an amazing pole vaulter and is also a centaur. It's like, well, yeah. it doesn't. Who cares? Why? Actually, I'd watch that. Yeah, I would too. That sounds like a good movie. <laughs> so uh, it, it, it all right, it cause, just cause depends. Because movie, it's... drama, comedy, anything that has a plot needs conflict. And someone with all these advantages are, isn't going to give you a lot of conflict. In general, yes. The, the, the very, very coarse blanket statement you would say is that if you are really, really attractive, male or female, you have fewer basic problems in life of a comedic nature than the average person, right? It's like there aren't a lot of uh, movies, great comedy movies made about beautiful, beautiful, beautiful people. So it's one of those things. It's like that attitude is sort of dying. And I think that's a good thing. And it's also, and, and really the reason it's a good thing isn't because it's misogynistic, which it sort of is. It's really because it's beside the point, yeah. especially in the year 2015. That's definitely true. I think that there are some subtleties. Tell me if I'm wrong. I think that the lead, you do want someone who's good to look at. You have a lot more leeway with secondary or tertiary characters. So you populated Parks and Rec. I mean, Amy Poehler was pretty prominently featured. Rashida Jones, Rob Lowe. 
Adam Scott. Mm-hmm. I'm not naming unattractive people, <laughs> yet filling out the office were people of all different body types. And I think it may be easier to A, do that with secondary characters, but also if there's a character who's going to say two lines, you want that character to be a type. And so an extremely funny person who's also good looking, but the good lookingness doesn't even come into effect, that kind of works against what you're trying to do sometimes. Yeah, maybe. I mean, look, Amy Poehler is the most charming and funny person I personally know. And that would be true regardless of what she looked like. If she were five inches taller and she looked like Emily Radajkowski or whatever her name is, and she had the same comedic timing and ability and the same 25 years of intense sketch and improv training and were the same amount of funny, you would still want to cast her in anything. And the same is true if she were seven inches shorter and weighed 300 pounds. It's like <laughs> you just don't find people who were that sort of funny and and deeply talented. Where are you guys going? The fourth floor, getting married. Okie dokie, well, catch you later. What? What? Poet? What tattoos? What the? There's a calculus that comes in, obviously, when you're producing a TV show. You say like, all right, you what? What do you? Uh, how do you put the cast together? What kinds of people do you want in your cast? What do you want them to look like? What do you? But ultimately, it's just about how funny they are, and it won't help you. And the, the, it won't help you to cast people who aren't funny, regardless of how attractive they are. The landscape of television over the last fifty years is littered with failed sitcoms with the most attractive people you've ever oh, seen. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? And in general, by the way, this is true for men too. Like. It's hard to find a really handsome, jacked guy who's really funny. Like, that doesn't exist either, in part because people who spend that much time at the gym aren't spending a lot of time doing improv and and sketch comedy and, like, thinking about their craft. So, you know, the the funny thing about Eisner's Comet to me was, like, if you look at the current landscape of the film world, it's like, so who are the men you're talking about? Like... Are you really attracted to Kevin James? <laughs> Are you like, do you look at Kevin James and Adam Sandler and you're like, well, there's the aesthetic ideal of a comedy star? Like, it's it's crazy. When that guy rides his Segway scooter and Paul Blart, it's, yeah, <laughs> rare. <laughs> but, you know, this comment you made about really attractive, funny, jacked guys, this brings me to Chris Pratt. Also, can you bring back Power Rangers? I don't know what it is you do, but you seem important enough to get that done. He evinces a a, a charm and humor, you know, it depends on what the material is. Jurassic World didn't have funny lines, but he had great charisma and there was a humor to him. But does he have to recalibrate what his comedic persona is since he's gone from Doey on Parks and Rec, Doey doofus, to jacked guy with a glint in his eye? I don't think so. I mean, I'll say a couple of things about Pratt. One is Pratt is a unicorn. And it's hard to like it's hard to take any lesson from him because he's a unicorn. He's right. a guy who looks like Chris Pratt and is as funny as Chris Pratt. They just they don't exist. Male or female, really, they don't and can, exist. And has like great rap chops and Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's just yeah. like a sort of a, he's a unicorn. But the other thing is, you know, when he lost he lost um like sixty pounds or something and or converted sixty pounds to muscle for uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, we were shooting Parks and Rec, and we went to London because he was shooting the movie there. We shot two episodes in London so that we could use him and explain his absence. So we showed up, and suddenly Chris Pratt had become Chris Pratt, and we were like, oh, God, what are we going to do? Like, this is insane. How how do we explain that like, kind of like schlubby, doughy, 
you know, goofball boyfriend of Aubrey Plaza's character, April, has suddenly transformed into like a superhero. And then we put a big, oversized, dumb-looking flannel shirt on him and some terrible jeans, and he just looked like Andy again. And so I think that at some point, you can do it with, like, costumes, and you can mess up his hair. And, you know, if he's not wearing a superhero costume and you're not looking at his crazy six-pack, you're not going to be thinking about how ripped he is, you know? And I think a version of that goes on with a really attractive woman like Kristen Wiig, who I think is pretty pretty beautiful, who in the role she plays is not trying to show that she's beautiful. So we maybe don't think of her as beautiful. If she was playing a real vampish character who was exuding sexiness, she'd be the sexy woman who was funny as opposed to the funny woman who, yeah, I mean, she's pretty sexy. Well, Wig is another unicorn. She's um, singularly concerned with being funny, which is the best thing a comedian can be. And I don't think she cares. I think the the hallmark of, of all male and female comedians who are true comedians is they really could give a rat's ass what you think of how they look. And they like putting on crazy wigs and they like looking ugly because that's, that's if it's in service of what they're doing comedically, then they're, that's all they care about. Someone left a bag of feces on my doorstep once. It was Halloween and they rang the bell, but when I got there, they were gone, but they left their feces bag. They must've forgotten it. I put it in my garden, but it didn't help any of my plants. I think because it came from a person. The longer this debate goes on about men or women, about what they look like and whatever, uh, in terms of the world of comedy, like the true comedians are ignoring all of it and they're just being funny and they don't care. And it's like, you guys waste your your breath on this and we'll just keep being funny. Have you been conscientious in your shows of not doing a thing where there's this really attractive person and you're pretending that she's not or he's not? The Kate Hudson can't get a date thing. It's like, what kind of world are we in? (laughs) So on your shows, like Mindy Kaling, who's really cute, comes off as someone who's really cute. Chelsea Peretti, who I've watched tons of her comedy. Breakups are cartoony thumbs down. They make people feel faced with X's for the eyes. What does that even mean? The English language cannot fully capture the depth and complexity of my thoughts, so I'm incorporating emoji into my speech to better express myself. Winky face. Oh, Lord. You portray the attractiveness of the women pretty much reflective as they are in real life and don't add to this, you know, cultural attractiveness inflation that TV sometimes (laughs) does. I mean, the thing about that we write to with Chelsea is confidence. It's not about how attractive she is or unattractive she is or this or that or whatever. Her defining characteristic as a person, I think, is her hilarious and earned confidence. Like, she is such a funny... She has such a funny attitude about life and such a kind of a a blustery, like on the first day of work, not the first day of work, but like in the first month of work, (laughs) we were at Parks and Rec. She was a writer on Parks and Rec. And we were talking about what kind of person we would be if we were the opposite gender. That was the that was the one of the many ways that writers kill time in a writer's room is to play games like this. So I was out of the room and I walked in and they were like, all right, what kind of woman would you be if you were a woman? And I was sort of started talking about, I was like, I don't know, I guess I'd be like this kind of woman. And I, you know, um, I would probably be like a pretty staunch feminist. And and I think I would be, you know, maybe a, a academic or something. I don't know. And I was describing myself. And Chelsea, who I really didn't know that well, said to me straight up, she was like, wow, you sound like a real bummer. <laughs> <laughs> it it was so funny and it like I burst out laughing and everyone burst out laughing. It was such a funny thing to say. I mean, she had 
just started working there and I was technically speaking her boss. And at that moment, I was like, oh, I get it. I am not her boss. Like, <laughs> I might, might be like nominally Chelsea's boss, but I am not her boss. And one time I did and I found this caricature that someone had drawn of me. And I don't know if you can imagine what feature they may have exaggerated, <laughs> but it wasn't my big heart. <laughs> So I'm looking at it and I'm just like, you know what? I got in the comments, I was just like, hey, like, I hope you and everyone who liked this dies. That's what we write to in terms of her character, obviously is a extreme exaggeration on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but like that confidence and that kind of funny attitude about the world is what we write to. We don't, we don't write to her attractiveness level or anyone's attractiveness level, yeah. really. I think at some point on TV shows when people start talking about how attractive or the characters are, or unattractive they are, becomes like a snake eating its own tail, where it's like, these aren't fictional characters anymore. These are, you peek behind the curtain and you see the writers just like writing what they're thinking about in the writer's room instead of what the people are talking about in real life, you know? So I, all of these things are like, they're vestiges of this old world where like, movie stars were made or discovered by like, just someone seeing them at like a drive through you know, and it's like, you're a movie star now, here, you're on camera. Like, now what's good about the current world is that it's a, it's more of a, it's not a meritocracy, it's not anything close to a meritocracy, but we're on the road to that where it's like talent will win the day and there are enough outlets where people who look like anything can, like, show what they got at, at some level. Well, I want to thank the two Michaels for inspiring this conversation, Michael Eisner for being the <laughs> the fodder, the cannon fodder, and Michael Shore. Brooklyn Nine-Nine is his show. He's also producing Aziz Ansari's new Netflix series. When's that coming out? Uh, date uh, yet to be determined, but should be later this year. Michael Shore, thank you. You're welcome. And now the spiel. Don't be horrible. This week, the top editors of Gawker quit when the website took down a post detailing how an executive at Condé Nast, the brother of a former secretary of the Treasury, solicited sex from a male porn star. The post never should have ran because it victimized a fairly private person who in no way deserved victimization. There are a hundred issues to pick apart, but 90-something percent of the people who looked into this matter have gotten it essentially right that this was a shameful story to run. Gawker aided a blackmailer for no good public purpose. And it might seem like there is an ambivalence in saying that the editors actually took an ethical stance in resigning, even though they are the ones who took the unethical stance in publishing the original post. But there's no ambivalence, actually. Let me put the disconnect somewhat pithily. Own your mistakes. The editors wanted Gawker to own its mistakes. The owners of Gawker said, nah, we'd rather erase them. The editors said, we're out of here. But you know what? You know what should have been the guiding principle in this whole thing that could also serve as a guide to other burning social conundra like how to feel about Caitlyn Jenner or what to think about the Confederate flag? There is one simple principle, and that is don't be horrible. Don't be horrible is not a popular thing to say. On the one hand, it's obvious. On the other hand, it's subjective. On the third hand, it doesn't go far enough in addressing underlying structural issues. On the fourth hand, it exposes critics as freakish forehanded monsters. So let me posit that I'm not endorsing don't be horrible as an all-encompassing panacea to social ills. I am allowing that my not horrible might be your white snake. And I'm also not saying that don't be horrible is sufficient, but it is necessary. 
We develop rules of ethics when simple dictums like don't be horrible don't suffice. But notice how rules of ethics often fall short or can't anticipate the complications of a particular issue. Don't be horrible has this tendency to break through the clutter. Let's take an example. The Washington Redskins. I'm not supposed to say Redskins, but I needed to make my point. I just had a debate with Adam Ragusia of the podcast The Pub about the advisability of using this term on air. And I made the case, just like I just said it right now, that sometimes you got to say it just to orient the listener, just to orient the audience, just so you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying? So in this debate, there's another side to my argument that it should be said sparingly. And of course, it's a slur. A recent poll shows that 75% of Americans say the Washington football team should not change its nickname. Let me present their argument. They say it's not meant as a slur. They say it's not actually taken as a slur by the particular people, Native Americans, who we've hired or given free tickets to or put in our ads. Also, we have a poll from 25 years ago that shows that most Native Americans don't object to it. Also, our owner gives money to Native American charities, and that money's only given because we kind of feel bad about the name, even though really there's no way we should feel bad about the name because our intention is not to use it as a slur, and that's what really matters. Our intention, not so much your feelings. Here's the other side of that argument. That was a pretty long, complex argument, right? Here's the counter-argument. Don't be horrible. It makes a lot of people feel really bad. Does it make all people feel bad? No, but some people, some significant proportion of the very people that the name describes feel horrible about being described that way. So you know what? Don't be horrible. Same argument for the Confederate flag. So I had a lot of Southern friends. I went to school in the South. This was the 1990s. And they waved the Confederate flag. A bunch of them were in a fraternity where the Confederate flag was prominent. I don't think these friends were racist at all. Except, you know, for the Confederate flag. And also, I had a lot of black friends. And none of my black friends really liked the flag. And a good percentage of them felt worse than not like. They felt terrible when they saw the Confederate flag. So before I went to the South, I didn't really think too much about the Confederate flag. But when I started thinking about it, I just got stuck on this one thing. You're making people feel horrible. And when some significant number of people feel horrible, and you're the one that made them feel this way, you have violated the principle of don't be horrible. Okay, now let's go to Gawker. So a lot of people criticize the Gawker outing, shaming, blackmailing thing because the editors had no idea what the nature of the marriage was of the main character in their story, right? They said, the Gawker editor said, well, we were outing a cheater. All right. Well, Glenn Greenwald wrote the most widely quoted post about that argument, about Gawker's justification that it's newsworthy because we're shaming powerful people who cheat in their marriages. And Glenn Greenwald said it doesn't work because Gawker, quote, has absolutely no idea what this CFO's wife knows about what her husband does. He went on to say long-term marriage between two complex adults is a very complicated dynamic to navigate and... It's very possible that the spousal agreement between them permits this flexibility on one or both of their parts. And I would say that's pretty unlikely. It's true that the editors don't know what the marriage was, and therefore they can't really presume that it really was cheating. But if it comes out that the wife was shocked, if it comes out that the wife was horrified, was embarrassed by what her husband did then can we retroactively say, well, at least that part of Gawker's justification panned out? No, we can't. 
Or maybe, yes, we can. But my point is it doesn't matter because Gawker failed to follow this other rule, which I stick to. Maybe you've heard of the rule. Don't be horrible. You helped a blackmailer. You ruined a guy who didn't deserve it. You were pointlessly horrible and you shouldn't be horrible. Dan Savage wondered why everyone is mad at Gawker for exposing one cheater, while sentiment seems to be in favor of the guys who hacked Ashley Madison, thereby exposing millions of cheaters. I have an idea why people have taken this stance. Because the cheaters are horrible. Savage's point is fine rhetoric. But when the resources of an investigative website descend on one man and his family, that's horrible. But when philanderers are exposed en masse, as clients of a website that specifically pitches itself as for philanderers, not for people with open marriages or an understanding, but for philanderers, we think philanderers, because they're philandering, are being horrible. And you know my stance about that. In the place of a well-worked-out code of professional or personal ethics, don't be horrible serves as a decent guide. It won't offer much guidance about what position you should take on the Israel-Palestine question or on the death penalty, but give me the simple philosophical principle that does. You want to say the Bible? Yeah, that's really working out in Israel. You want to say the Bible with the death penalty? Hey, thou shalt not kill. Simple enough. Oh, yeah? I also see in there it says an eye for an eye. And guess what? Don't be horrible has fewer words than either of those phrases. Okay, okay, okay. But wait a second, Mike. How is don't be horrible, your don't be horrible idea, how is that different from giving no offense? How is that different from censoring yourself for fear of ever giving umbrage to anyone? I mean, people are oversensitive, aren't they? What do you do about oversensitivity? I'll tell you what you do. I have figured this out. It's about the word oversensitivity. In fact, it's about the over part. Here's how I define oversensitivity. I don't define it. I realized it's not always my job to define it. It turns out that a decent referendum on what is or isn't oversensitive is provided by the world outside my consciousness. I could personally weigh the merits of whether black people should take into account the intention of the flag waver, the need for regional pride, the joy of wearing a denim jacket to a Leonard Skinner concert. I could. But the important thing isn't that I bang my gavel and say, good point, bad point. The important thing is that I listen to not even a majority, but a significant plurality of the audience. And if enough people, a lot of, let's just define it as a lot. It doesn't have to be most But if a lot of people are saying they're offended, that's good enough for me. And this is why I still mock the ideas of trigger warnings or microaggressions. Right now, they seem like fringe concepts that dwell in rarefied environs. They don't seem, to me, they don't seem to overcome the competing principles of truth, free expression, and resilience. However, if I were speaking to a group of trauma victims, I might give a trigger warning even if I were telling a perfectly fine, factual, non-gratuitous story. Why? Because otherwise I'd be horrible. And you might not know this, but I like to live by the words, don't be horrible. David Foster Wallace wrote in his essay, Host, that some conservative talk show hosts are, quote, unable to differentiate between, one, cowardly, hypocritical acquiescence to the tyranny of political correctness, and two, judicious, compassionate caution about using words that cause pain to large groups of human beings, especially when there are several less upsetting words that can be used. Yup, being judicious is not being horrible. 
being compassionate is not being horrible. Being cautious is not being horrible. So say it, wave it, wear it, publish it, argue it. But first answer, am I being horrible? The answer is not the end-all be-all determinant of worth. But as a first step, it's not horrible. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the producer of The Gist. She combines the comic timing of a Phil Silvers with the grace, beauty, and munitions expertise of a Hedy Lamar. Managing producer Joel Meyer marries the mirth of a Ross from Friends and the serenity of a Bob Ross from PBS Painting. Executive producer Andy Bowers takes the comic timing of a Professor Irwin Corey and merges it to the humanity of a Professor Jeffrey Sachs. The Gist. You know, if beauty and humor are mutually exclusive, I do not see how it affects our brand at all. Thanks for listening. And now let me talk about a sister podcast from Slate and from the Panoply Network. The latest edition of the Money Podcast is a keepsake because they talk at length and in depth about the Greek crisis, the Grexit, the Greek currency crisis. It's lively. You get debate. By the end, you're a lot smarter than when you started. That alone is a good enough criteria for listening to a podcast. So Jordan, Kathy, and Felix get together to talk everything about Greece. I listened to it. I loved it on the latest Slate Money Podcast. For this and all the other Panoply shows, go to panoply.fm.